I invite, with you, invite you to turn your Bibles now to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. You can find this passage in the Pew Bibles on page 1015 or in your bulletin. Going to continue this 1 Peter series we've entitled Elect Exiles. And, uh, and the passage, uh, this message this morning is entitled Christ the Servant of All. Christ the Servant of All. If you're able, please stand now for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read together 1 Peter 2, 18 to 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let me pray for us. Father, we gather now to hear the preaching of your word, and we are again thankful for your word. Thank you that you do not leave us to ourselves to navigate the complexities of this life, but you've given us in your word everything we need for life and godliness. Father, give us ears to listen to your word. Give us hearts that not only obey, but long to obey your word. And Father, do this by your spirit through Jesus Christ, we ask. Amen. My papa Marsh, which is my mom's father, has had a wonderful influence on my life. And his influence on my life has far exceeded the 12 years that I had with him before he passed away in 1990. And one of my papa's favorite passages that he would always read with me when he would come into town to visit was Psalm 37. And it's In this psalm, that it's all about entrusting ourselves to God, especially when we are entrusting ourselves to God when the wicked seem to prosper around us and prosper at our expense. And here's just the taste of the psalm that I would read with him. Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. And often when we would read this psalm, he would begin to relate to me stories from his time in the military. And my my grandfather and my papa served for 20 years in the military, World War II through Korea and all the way up through the early 1960s. And he would relate that during his time in the military that they had to follow their commanding officers with all respect. 
It was very much a yes, sir, no, sir, uh, right away, all the way, every day, as Stephen said last week in the children's sermon. But these weren't children, these were men, and they were commanded to follow their officers. Now, many of these men, he said, were good men, but some of them were cruel. Some of them were capricious. Some of them were even inept. They didn't know how to do their jobs well, and yet he had to follow them as his superior officers. And he said it was in those moments that he would lean upon this psalm, which taught him to entrust himself to God, even when he was required to follow those that he didn't deem worthy of following. This week we're covering the second of our passages on submission to God through our submission to various human institutions. Last week we covered our submission to governing authorities, and this week we're going to be covering submission to our employers and the workplace. And next week, Chris is going to be covering our, uh, the submission in the context of marriage. And so this week, uh, we're going to be doing servants and masters. So beyond the particular dynamics of this working relationship we're going to cover, we also have this wonderful passage about Christ that was the second two-thirds of our the, the two-thirds of our passage. And this passage, it's plopped right here in the middle, and it doesn't apply just to our relationships in the workplace. It, it applies to all of these relationships of submission. So we're going to spend a good bit of time there because it really is the heartbeat of what does it look like to humbly follow God by submitting to these institutions. Main point for this morning is this. Christ's life displays for us what it looks like to entrust ourselves to our Heavenly Father in the face of unjust treatment. Christ's life displays for us what it looks like to entrust ourselves to our Heavenly Father in the face of unjust treatment. We have three points this morning, and the first point is the same as last week's first point. It is be subject. Look with me again at 1 Peter 2.18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So Peter, three times in these three passages, begins with this command to be subject. And it means to subject ourselves. It, it commands us to decide to submit ourselves to governing authorities through our obedience. These authorities which God has put in place. And in this passage, it is commanding servants to be subject to their masters. Now to better understand this command, we need to consider the context that Peter was writing in. And we need to bring this to the modern day. So we need to start with understanding what was the context of him writing to these servants. What was servanthood like in the first century? So servanthood or slavery in the first century, first off, it was, it was very different than the chattel slavery which we are familiar with in the United States. It was a different kind of institution than American slavery. And Wayne Grudem, whom I'm going to be heavily reliant upon, he describes this slavery in this way. So he, he talks about it as, although these slaves were certainly mistreated during the first century, overall they were well treated and there were extensive laws that could ensure uh, their protection. And the types of labor that they engaged in were quite different. So there were sure there was some unskilled labor, but a lot of them were very skilled in their vocations. Some of them were doctors, nurses, teachers, musicians, and artisans. Another key difference from American slavery is that they were paid for their labors. And at the end of this time, they were allowed to take the money that they had earned. After serving a def defined period of time, they were able to purchase their slavery. So it's a very different slavery than what we are used to in this country. Uh, however, due to the involuntary nature of this service, their freedoms were also curtailed. So it's not like our employee and employer relationships exactly. It left them at the mercy of their masters for a defined period of time. Whether these masters were just 
or unjust, whether they were good and gentle or whether they were merciless. And so they fell somewhere between outright slavery and the voluntary service which we have as our employee-employee relationships. The closest modern equivalent is actually the military, which is why I started with this illustration from my, my grandfather's life. The closest thing is, is the military where you enlist, and while you're enlisted in the military, you are owned by that military for a defined period of time, and you are subject to all the authorities within that governing authority of the military. So it's very close to that. So this first century form of suited, ser, ser, servitude was by far the most common employer-employee relationship of the time. And given the economic status that these servants had and the, the various vocations and skills that they had, the closest parallel we really have is the employer-employee relationship of the modern day. So having brought us to the present, this is how it applies to us. It's different, but there are some applications. What's Peter's instruction for employees with regard to their employers? It says, we are to be subject to them with all respect whether they be good and gentle or unjust. This instruction reminds us that we are to be sub subject to the authorities in our workplaces, those who oversee us, our bosses, our managers, the president of the company that we work for. We are in to live in submission to them. And this submission, it's not conditioned upon their treatment of us. So whether they are good or gentle, whether they are difficult and irritable, whether they are even unjust, we are called by God to be subject to them. So obviously a good and gentle employer, it's a lot easier to follow them. But even then, we can have good and gentle employers that are inept or that make a bad decision in our opinion. And even in that moment, God calls us to be subject to them. Even more so, he calls us to be subject to them when our employees are, employers are difficult, when they might be cold or easily irritated or demanding or hypocrites or unreasonable or even they're inept. Maybe we know what to do better than they do, but we're called to follow them anyway. We are called to be subject to those in authority over us in the workplace. Now, this verse also raises the obvious question. We talked about this last week. What do we do when there's something that's truly unjust, when we are called to actually obey God rather than men? When are we called to a principled disobedience? And the word unjust here means someone who is morally bent or twisted, crooked, unscrupulous, or dishonest. And so immediately we begin to think, what are we to do in those moments when this person is actually asking us to do something that might be sinful or wrong? So disobeying an unscrupulous boss uh, may, be, uh, may have been more difficult for, for Peter and the servants of his day, but it's also difficult and costly for us. We might have to make decisions that will cost us in the workplace. We might have to refuse something that we've been asked to do. I'm sorry, I simply can't do that. I can't in integrity do what you've asked me to do. We may, if that refusal isn't received, we might have to go to the HR department. Or we might have to think through legal ramifications or think through leaving our employer entirely in order to avoid doing this. So it's true that the, the servants of Peter's day had fewer freedoms, and we have more freedoms than them to, to take actions like this. We have more avenues of recourse, but it is still costly to us to do this. And this cost introduce, introduces an interesting wrinkle that I believe is worth mentioning. Last week, we talked about governing authorities. And so governing authorities, when they collect funds, they collect, when they, money with governing authorities, they collect funds from us. And they, they tend to ask us to do things from a distance. But our employers are different. They're not taking money from us. They are giving us money, oftentimes lots of money, to do the job that they've asked us to do. 
And this money that they are giving us, it allows us to live the lives that we live and live the lifestyles that we are living. And so we are forced to take, take account of a different kind of equation. When it comes to the government who takes money from us and rules us from afar, our tendency might be to want to throw off those governing authorities. But the temptation might actually be quite different when we begin to think about our employers. They give us money. They give us lots of money. And so when they ask us to do something that maybe we don't feel quite right about, the temptation isn't necessarily to throw them off. The temptation might actually be to compromise our integrity in order to keep the job that's providing the life that we are enjoying. Put another way, going back to the imagery of Peter on the night when Jesus was betrayed, when it comes to governing authorities, we tend to take up the sword. We tend to want to fight or to resist. But with our employers, the temptation might actually be to warm ourselves by the fire, to blend in, to not make any waves because we know who pays the bills. And it's this employer. And so we're tempted to warm ourselves by the fire. Yes, we have freedom different than the servants in the first century, to take a stand of principled disobedience. But holding to our principles may cost us in the workplace. We might be passed over for promotions. We might, in refusing to do something, actually lose our positions. We might be blackballed in our industries. We might be required to change our place of employment, which comes with all kinds of challenging difficulties for our lives. So the question is, is how are you doing submitting to your employer? How are you doing with those who are good and gentle? And also, how are you doing with the boss or the manager who's difficult, who's a pain, who's harsh, who's mean? Are you submitting to them in your thoughts and in your words and in your actions? How about when you're out of earshot or out of sight? How do you speak about your manager to other employees? How do you speak about your manager to your spouse at the dinner table in front of your children? Are you respecting them and honoring them even then? How are you doing in being willing to push back in a principled way when you feel like you're being asked to do something that compromises your integrity? Are you willing to pay that price? Are you willing to refuse? Or are you being tempted to to shade, to, to bend, to accommodate, because you know that to stand up in a principled way may cost you. These are challenging questions for each and every one of us to consider. Thankfully, God doesn't leave us without some incentives to obey him in the midst of these challenging decisions. Obedience is difficult, and it may even be costly, But to aid us in our obedience, God points us to the delight that he takes in our obedience, which is point number two, a gracious thing, a gracious thing. Look with me again at verses 19 and 20. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, I spent a good bit of time this week trying to think through what is this is a gracious thing. It's a phrase that's kind of unfamiliar to me. How would it be a gracious thing to God to see this in our lives? And here's what I think it means. It took me a while to kind of figure this out. Here's what I think it means. Like a father and a mother who delights in the obedience of a child 
So God delights in our obedience. It is a thing that he that calls forth a favorable or a gracious response from God. He looks at it and he delights in it. It is a gracious thing in his sight. Now this gracious thing it doesn't merit God's favor. So it's not as though we obey and then he loves us more as a result of our obedience. It's it's like a, a parent who loves a child unconditionally. No matter what they do, you will love this child, but when they obey, it is a pleasing thing. In a similar way, God looks at us and he loves us unconditionally. His love for us is based on Christ and nothing else. But when he looks at us, loves us unconditionally, and then sees us obeying, particularly when it's costly to us, it is a gracious thing in his sight. He delights when we obey him. When submission to an employer or principal disobedience brings sorrow and suffering, be mindful of this. God sees that sorrow. He sees the cost. He knows what it is costing you, and when he sees us obey anyway, it is a gracious and delightful thing in his sight. Now, a question that arises out of this is, uh, why is this such a delightful thing to God? Why is it such a delightful thing that when you obey in this gracious way? And I believe it's because through our submission and suffering, our lives display the glory of of Christ, who was the servant of all, who suffered all, and at the hands of governing authorities, submitted to them, and through that submission purchased our salvation. Which brings us to point number three, Christ the servant of all. Christ the servant of all. Let's look again together at verses 21 through 25, which are just beautiful verses about Christ. For to this you have been called... Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So Peter begins in this section of our passage, and he wants to make this clear connection between Christ's suffering and our suffering. God isn't calling us to do anything that Christ has not already done. Not only for us, but as an example for us. We are called to suffer for doing good just as Christ suffered for doing good. And it's Christ's example that we are to follow. However, unlike Christ, unlike us, Christ never suffered for his sins. Peter in this passage and several times throughout the book, he will make this distinction. There's one kind of suffering which comes as a result of us sinning. And when we suffer for sinning, we shouldn't be surprised that we are punished for that. However, there's another kind of suffering. There's a suffering for doing good. For us, we can suffer sometimes for sinning and sometimes for doing good. But for Christ, he never once suffered because of his sin. Christ, every single time he was suffering, he was suffering for the sins of other people. Not so... So Christ never sinned. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Christ, from his conception all the way to the ascension, he suffered at the hands of wicked humanity. 
As God Jesus, he breathed all of creation into existence. He created each and every one of the governing institutions that are in this world. And he created them to be subject to him, to honor and to obey him. Yet without exception, every authority that he put in place, every human institution, every human on this earth, they made him suffer. They opposed him and they rejected him. In the face of this rejection and unjust suffering, he never once sinfully responded, not even once. At every turn, he entrusted himself to the Father, whom he knew judges justly. And he did so out of love for us. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Every act of Christ's submission, every moment of suffering, every injustice that he took upon himself, he did so for us. He did so on our behalf and not because of any sin that he himself ever committed. It was our sin that deserved the righteous judgment of God. We deserved the wounds of his crucifixion. We were the sheep who had gone astray, every single one of us going our own way. Yet it was our sinless Savior who freely took upon himself each and every one of our sins. By his wounds we are healed. And Christ did all of this willingly lovingly and selflessly so that we might have a right standing with God and be returned to a right relationship with the shepherd and overseer of our souls. This glorious picture of Christ and what he endured for us, it should evoke a response for us. It calls us to respond to this truth. First, it calls us to imitate Christ's example. Peter calls us to follow in the steps of Christ. And this following in the steps of Christ, it evokes imagery of a scribe copying a text or an artist copying a piece of art. So think of it like this way, our imitation, that Christ is like a book. Picture, you just take the text and you are pouring over the text, but not only studying the text... You then begin to copy longhand this text, and as you do, you are ruminating on it, and you are beginning to be shaped by it. You imitate it through your cogitation, your thinking, your meditation on this text. Or picture taking the tracing paper of your life, and you lay it over a piece of art that is a picture of the righteous and holy life of Christ, and you begin to trace the contours of who Christ is, what he has done, and what he has done for each and every one of us. And as you do, this, this piece of art that you are tracing begins to show forth the glories of Christ, the piece of art that is underneath the tracing paper. We are called to imitate, to study, to follow in the steps of Christ. To like a scribe with a text or like an artist tracing this beautiful piece of art to show forth the glory of Christ as we imitate his life. Secondly, this call to imitate his example, it will lead to a deeper understanding of Christ. It's one thing to admire him from afar, but as we seek to imitate him, to study his life and to live it, we will understand him in a far deeper way. To use this artistic imagery again, we've all been to a gallery where we've seen a beautiful piece of art, maybe even got sort of close to it, but it's still up on the wall. Now imagine taking that down, you take down the Mona Lisa and you put it on your desk where you are working and you begin to take your canvas and you lay it next to it 
and you begin to study it and imitate it. Immediately, you're going to realize you are in the presence of a master, and you're going to see the great distance between your skills and the skills of that master. But you're also, through the imitation, you're going to begin to understand just how amazing that piece of art is, and it will lead you to be in awe of the one who created it. In a similar way, as we begin to imitate Christ, as we lay his life next to the canvas of our life and we begin to try and, in a feeble way, imitate what he has done, it will lead us to humbly acknowledge how glorious and beautiful Christ is as we begin to understand just how amazing and difficult and wonderful it was to do the things that he did on our behalf. Through our imitation, we come to have a greater and deeper understanding of what Christ has done and the beauty of Christ's life. Now, Peter places this glorious picture of Christ here because he knows just how hard it is to submit in this life. He puts it right here in the middle of these three commands to submit to various human institutions. He wants us to see that as difficult as this call is, Christ has already answered this call for us. Christ has gone before us. He has demonstrated what does it look like to humbly submit yourself to a governing authority, even when they are treating you unjustly. He shows us what it looks like to have courage, to take a principled stand that is costly to us, to turn from something that is unjust in our workplace that we're being asked to do and pay the price of keeping our integrity. He shows us what it looks like to have the courage to live life in that way. He also demonstrates what it looks like to look beyond the horizon of this life. That by submitting to these authorities, what we are doing is we're actually we're raising our gaze and recognizing that we are living for a day that is yet to come and we are entrusting ourselves to our Father who will always judge things justly. Friends, every act of our obedience, it is a delight to God. Throughout the book of Peter, the audience that Peter has frequently pointed to is the audience of a watching world that will sometimes oppose us, but also other times be drawn to Christ. But the audience he points us to in this passage is God himself, who sees us, who knows us, who loves us, and who delights in the price that we are paying to obey and follow him. And so as God calls us to this obedience, he not only delights in that obedience, he's made a way for us to follow him by making a way through Christ for us to obey. He's given Christ for us that we might be empowered by his spirit to imitate Christ, looking more and more like Christ. And all along the way, the Father is delighting as he sees us obeying and imitating our Savior. Friends, this is the call that Christ has placed upon us. And it's a call that the Father has made possible. And it's one in which the Father delights in. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you for Christ. Father, not only that he made our salvation possible, but that you have displayed him in your word in such a way that it draws forth from us admiration, adoration, affection, and delight. Father, may we see the beauty of Christ, the beauty of his humility, the beauty of his courage, the beauty of his selflessness. And may it reshape how we engage every authority in our life, whether it be your authority or the authority of any governing authority you've put in place. 
And Father, may you help us to know how much you delight in seeing our obedience. And may that motivate us to bring delight to you each and every day through that obedience. We ask these things in Christ's name.